21, 25. Just one verse this morning. We're going to kind of keep it simple. Um, as we get ready to, we're finishing Judges today, and we're going to get ready to hop back into Matthew next week. And uh, we're going to look at this one verse that basically sums up um, all of Judges, and especially the last four chapters of Judges. Um, we've been, as we've been going through the book of Judges this summer, we've been seeing how Israel has been describing the, the fact that Israel has been just spiraling downward over and over again as they've turned away from God and God has continued to rescue them and raise up deliverers and judges to, to, to give them rest and peace. But even the judges that are produced over the course of the book get worse and worse and worse. And we saw last week as Silas preached uh, that, that Samson, even though he killed a bunch of Israelite enemies, he didn't really deliver them. He didn't really give them any rest. And Samson wasn't really anybody that was really exemplary as far as someone to follow, as far as someone to lead. And then um, the last four chapters of Judges don't even talk about any, any judges at all, really. Uh, it just gets really, really dark. And we're gonna, I'll, I'll kind of describe that in a few minutes. But, uh, but we come to the very end, um, and this, this final verse just describes everything. And, and the sad thing, the sobering thing, I think, is that this verse doesn't just describe Israel here, but it describes our world today very well. Um, and even our own hearts. So listen to God's word as I read Judges 21, 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us this morning as we look at your word, as we think about it. We need your spirit to open our eyes, to open our minds, to open our hearts. We need your spirit to enable us, to help us, to embrace your truth and to respond to it. So Father, we pray that as we look at this verse that uh, none of us would leave here unchanged. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if, if it's possible in life, I think all of us would agree that, it's that, that we would rather try to avoid experiencing a low point. Um, it's, it's, uh, it's hitting rock bottom is not something any of us ever wants to do, you know? There's a, a great scene from uh, the movie Father of the Bride. I just rewatched that recently. I don't know if you, how, many, how many of you guys have seen that movie. The, the, the version with Steve Martin. Um, and, uh, and there's this point in the movie where, well, Steve Martin, if you don't, aren't familiar with it, he plays a, a dad who, whose daughter comes home from a semester abroad, and she tells him that she's engaged, and she's going to get married, and he does not handle it well. And he, is, uh, he, he just uh, is, doesn't think she's ready. She's too young, and, and, and he's looking for any reason possible to like, be suspicious of the fiancé and his family and to think less of them, to judge them. And so early on in the movie, they're, they're, he and his wife are invited over to the in-laws' home to meet them and have brunch with them. And, and they're driving through the neighborhood, going to their house, and, and it's this neighborhood with all of these huge mansions. And already he's like, oh, they're really rich, you know. And, and, and they get there and they meet them. The people are very, you know, they're very nice and everything. And then they're getting ready to sit down for, for brunch. And, and he, he says, can I, can I use your bathroom? And, and and she's like, uh, the, the wife's like, well, we're doing some renovation on the bathroom down here. Uh, you'll have to go upstairs. It's the seventh door on the left. And, and he's like, the second door? And he's like, the seventh door. 
He's like, oh, please. And so he goes upstairs and he goes to the bathroom. And after, after he uses the bathroom, he's like snooping around, like looking for some reason to judge them. And he's looking in their, their medicine cabinets. And then he like tries to open a, a, a medicine cabinet, but it's just a mirror and he breaks it off the wall. And then he walks out through the study um, and he notices their bank book is on the desk and he can't resist himself. He just has to find out, you know, how much money do these people really have? And so he picks up the bank book and he starts looking through it and he can't believe what he sees, you know? These people are so rich. And at and, and that moment, their dogs enter the room. They have these vicious Doberman pinchers. And they enter the room and he's like, oh no, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? He's got to escape. And, and so it pans down to, to the wife eating brunch, sitting at the table with the couple. And there's like windows all around this dining room. And she looks over the shoulder of the host and the, the, the first thing she sees is her husband then dangling from the balcony out those, outside the window. And she's like, what is going on? And she's trying to make small talk with the people and hoping they don't notice. And, he, and then he finally drops to the ground and, and, and he's like trying to figure out what to do. And he realizes he still has the bank book in his hand. And so he's like, oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? And, and so then he tries to throw it back up onto the balcony and it bounces off something and then flies back over his head and lands in the pool. And now he's like, what am I going to do? How am I going to get out of this situation without them knowing? And he, and he tries to go around to the pool. He's like reaching for the bank book across the water. It's just, just out of reach. And it's at that moment that the Doberman pinchers arrive again on either side of him. And, and his wife's just watching this whole thing, just desperately hoping that the, the, the guy and his wife don't see him and what's going on. And eventually the dogs charge him and he falls in the pool. And then you don't see what happens next, but you know the interaction that he must have had with the, with the in-laws at that point, you know? He, he couldn't have avoided the embarrassment, the shame. I mean, that, that's, that's a low point, right? You can imagine how, how, like, just probably they probably were trying to be kind, but also very upset and offended and and everything. It was just, just an absolute low point. It's, it, low points are brutal, you know. They're shameful. They're embarrassing. We want to avoid them. Chapters 17 to 21 in Judges describe what many people would say is the low point in Israel. It was at least a low point, if not the low point, in the history of Israel. Um, there are a few stories that, uh, that are here, uh, beginning in chapter 17, but uh, I'll just kind of give you the highlights. In, in chapter 17, it starts off with this r seemingly random guy named Micah, and he steals a bunch of silver from his mother. And then he gives it back to her, but then he talks her into using some of that money to, to melt it down and ma make it into some carved idols that they can worship. And he sets up a little, a little shrine in their home to, to some household gods. And then he finds a, a priest in Israel to come and, and, and to live there and to be his kind of like personal priest in this shrine to these other gods. And you're like, wow, that, that doesn't sound good, right? And, but then the next chapter comes along and there's this group of guys from another tribe, from the tribe of Dan, and, and they don't have land. At the, and, and, and they come a, a, across this guy and they're like, oh, you've got this nice shrine. This is pretty cool. And then they take all of his stuff and they convince the priest to come with them. And, and so they have their own little priests and their own little you know, household gods to go with them. And, and Micah is too weak to stop them. And so they just take his stuff. And then they don't have a place to live yet, so they just go find some town and they slaughter everybody and they live there. 
And, uh, and it's, you know, it's clear God hasn't given this town or this region to these people, and they've just slaughtered everyone and taken it. And you're like, what is going on? And then it just gets worse in chapter 19. Um, in chapter 19, it zeroes in on this guy who, who brings his concubine to this town in the tribe of Benjamin. And uh, while he's there, a guy has him enter his house, and then it says the house is surrounded by a bunch of worthless men who want, to, to, to want the host to send the guy out and, so that they can abuse him and have their way with him. And the guy, what does he do? Well, he's like, uh, he sends out his concubine to the crowd. And they brutalize her and abuse her. And the next morning, he finds her on the threshold of the doorway and he takes her home. And then he cuts her up into 12 pieces and sends her throughout Israel, her, her piece, the pieces of her body throughout Israel. You're like, what is going on? And, and he says, you know, how could this have happened in Israel? And then Israel all responds. They gather an army, and they bring this army against the tribe of Benjamin, and they fight against Benjamin for three days. They take some serious losses themselves, but after several days, they finally defeat Benjamin, and they, and they wipe out Benjamin's army of like 25,000 men um, till there's only 600 guys left. But they don't just defeat the army. They also slaughter all of the women, all of their wives, so that there's only 600 men left. And, and it's just this violence and slaughter and brutality. It's, it's awful. And, and they're so upset with Benjamin that they make this vow. They're like, we're never going to give any of our our daughters to be wives to, to the Benjaminites. But then shortly after that, they start having second thoughts, and they're like, well, we feel bad that we just wiped out this tribe. We can't have a tribe just disappear in Israel, so we need to figure out some way to find some wives for these 600 guys. So they, they devise a plan. They, there, there was one town that didn't come help them fight in the, in the battle against Benjamin, and so they go to this town, and they just slaughter that town. And they take the women and give them to Benjamin. And uh, the problem is there's only 400 women and there's 600 guys. And they're like, well, we still need some more wives for these 200 guys. So then they're like, well, we vowed never to give you any of our daughters. So there's this festival that happens in Israel and these young maidens come out and dance in the fields. So we're not going to give them to you, but if you want to lay in hiding and then just kidnap them for yourselves, feel free. And that's what they do. And, and that's the end of the book. That's, that's, it's, it's ugly, it's dark, it's brutal. And, and the ironic thing, as you think about it, Israel responds to this violent treatment of this one woman by going to war against Benjamin. But they seem to have come full circle and blown up the whole kind of dynamic where they basically violently abuse 600 women as they kidnap them and just give them to these 600 men. They, they, they do the exact thing, basically the exact, exact thing that they judge Benjamin for. And if, you, if you're familiar with the Bible, you're also like, as you're reading chapter 19, you're like, this sounds very familiar. This sounds really familiar. Um, if you're familiar with the book of Genesis, there's a moment when God brings his judgment against the towns of Sodom and Gomorrah. And what happens in Sodom and Gomorrah is very, very, very similar, almost verbatim, what happens here in Benjamin. 
And so I think we're meant to be like, oh, Israel has fallen this far. You know, what these foreigners were doing, that God brought, like this, kind of the epitome, the, the apex of, of sin and God's judgment on it in Genesis is now happening in Israel. This is where Israel has fallen. And this is why I say this is a serious low point, right? Shame, embarrassment. Um, where do we go from here? And, and at the end, in, in chapter 21, he sums it up. The author of Judges sums it up with this one verse. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And I think in this one verse, if this, this one verse functions in three ways, I think. Number one, it functions as a description of what Israel was like at the time. Uh, number two, it functions as a lament about what Israel was like at the time. But number three, it also functions as an invitation. It functions as an opportunity for those reading this book to figure out what they should do, <laughs> what they should do now. So that's what I want to talk about um, just briefly. First of all, the fact that it functions as a description of the way things were. The Israelites were living their lives, making decisions. All of this, all of this darkness, all of this sin, it was all the result of the Israelites doing what they thought was right in their own eyes. They were looking at the world through their own eyes, through their perspective, what they thought was right, what they thought was important. That's what they were living for. They were, none of them were, were submitting to something greater or someone greater, right? They were all focused primarily on what they wanted, on what they thought was important, on what they valued, and they, and, and they were just measuring their lives by their own sense of what they wanted and desired. And I, I think, as I said before, this is a, a perfect description of our world today. It's a perfect description of our world today. Sure, there are leaders in our world. There are governments. There are presidents. There are monarchies. You know, we've been reminded of this past week. Um, but at the same time, everybody just kind of does what they want. Every single one of us, particularly in the Western world, in our culture, we, we look at life through our own eyes and, and we're just committed you know, don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what to believe. Don't take away what is rightfully mine. Don't infringe on my rights. You know, we cling to what is ours. And um, it, it's, it's a real, I think, a really good description of, 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 our, of our world and our country especially. This, this verse has a very individualistic bent to it, Right? Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. The individual is king. The individual is most important. And, and I think that's it's such a, an incredible like, descriptive of, of, uh, of a word for our, our nation today. The individual matters most. What I've understood, what I believe is true, that is what matters I was listening to a podcast um, of a guy that Brian Kim recommended to me a few weeks ago named Alistair Groves, and, and he was talking about this verse and this, uh, the whole book. And he was describing this dynamic it, it, in a way not only that, that we are um, a people who kind of stubbornly you know, refuse to let anybody else give us input, but we also, there's this dynamic where in our, our world today, we, we have this pressure 
to kind of define ourselves, to create ourselves individually, um, to make sure that we are unique among everyone else. And that's what kind of gives us value and significance, the ways that we can set ourselves apart from everybody else around us. And he uses this interesting example, kind of this, this I think, kind of an innocent example of how uh, he talks about if you ask somebody what kind of music they like these days, a lot of people, uh, most people will say, well, I like a little of everything, but then they share uh, a name of a band or a singer that you've never heard of before, right? Um, and that's kind of a, just kind of a symptom of the fact that like, we all like, take pride in the fact that we all kind of discovered something unique. That's what gives us value, you know? Um, I, I do that myself. I love to share with people something that I've discovered that nobody else has, you know? Um, and, the, and, and, and that's just kind of who we are. Um, we, we've convinced ourselves that, that we must create ourselves. We must define ourselves as significant, as unique, and that is what gives us value. And so it's a description of the way things were in Israel, and I think it's a description of the way things are now. But the problem is that this statement is also a lament. As you think about it, this statement comes right after Israel has become what they themselves fought in judgment against, right? As I mentioned, this, these four chapters, it gets so dark. And it, it, is, it is such a low point, and, and the author of Judges sums it up. In those days, there was no king. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. He's not saying this is a good thing. He's saying this is a sad thing. This is a sad thing. After so much murder and slaughter and death and abuse and brutality, people using one another, people worshiping gods other than the one true living God, this is where we've come to. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and it's a sad, sad thing. There's a lot of suffering that results when this is what describes us. And, and so it's a lament. Um, you know, as I say it's a lament, I saw a funny video this past week uh, on social media, and I don't know if any of you guys have seen it, but the, there's this uh, little uh, football team, like a peewee football team, these little tiny kids all in their big football pads, and they must have been getting ready for the first game of the season. And so, I don't know, it was the coach or the parents or the cheerleaders all decided that they would make a big banner so that the team, you know, you've seen it before, the team can run through the banner and burst through and everybody would be really like hyped up and excited. And, uh, and so they have this big banner that the cheerleaders are holding, you know, these little, little tiny cheerleaders are holding up in the middle of the field. And then, uh, and then the coach, you know, the, 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 the team's all, like, getting ready to, to run onto the field. The coach then gives them the signal to go ahead and run, and then that's when the comedy ensues because the very first kid stumbles and falls, and all the other kids are falling over the top of him. But the kids who don't fall, this is when it gets funny, the kids who don't fall all start running in all sorts of directions, like every direction possible. Whatever direction each kid wanted to run in, that's the direction they ran in. And so some ran behind the banner, some ran in front of the banner, and then guess what? They all tried to run through the banner. And they all collided with one another. And it was, it was brutal. It was ugly. I'm sure there were some injuries. I'm sure there were some kids who were crying, sitting on the ground. And, th and that's when the best part happens, when the coach just like takes his hat off and he just chucks it. He's just like so angry that it didn't work out before the game even starts. But I mean, that, it's a picture of what happens when we all do what is right in our own eyes. All these kids running in the direction that they thought was right, that they were committed to, and they were so committed to it, they ran full steam ahead into the banner, into one another. Pain is what they experienced. 
And that's exactly what all of us are too well acquainted with, is pain. Because we are running all in the direction that we think is right. There is pain. There is suffering. When people are taking advantage of others for their own gain. When people use one another. When people, uh, we're callous to one another because we're so focused on looking at life through our own eyes. And so we miss others around us. We can't look through life, look at life through their eyes. I mean, think about it. We, we, this, this is September 11th, the day that we, many of us, are remembering a, a massive, massive tragedy and loss of life, right? And why did that happen? It be, happened because everyone does what is right in their own eyes. And it can result in tragedy. There's a massive suffering and struggle and frustration because all of us, all of us have this bent towards just trying to live life, looking through our own eyes and doing what is right according to what we think is important, according to what we want. And coming back to that other idea, that kind of more subtle kind of uh, counseling perspective where we, we all have this commitment to try to create ourselves to give our lives meaning and significance by making ourselves unique and, and defining ourselves as distinct from other people. Uh, what, what Alistair Groves was pointing out is that there's an immense pressure, weight that that puts on every single person to kind of give my life significance to the degree that I can kind of create myself. We don't have that kind of power to give ourselves the value that we were made to have. And so as a result, that's why there's a lot of, you know, we, we self-medicate and, and we're addicted to things and we escape to things. There's a massive suffering when we try to live life by doing what is right in our own eyes. But I think this verse is also key because it reminds us that we have an opportunity. We have an opportunity. Um, I mentioned that this is a low point for Israel here, Right? And I have often heard people point out that, especially when you're dealing with something that is big, a problem that you are helpless to deal with, it's only when you hit rock bottom that you can actually take healthy steps forward, right? Because it's only when you hit that low point that you realize that, that you don't have any excuses. It's only when you hit that low point that you realize that you really are helpless and you cannot do it on your own. And so I think as, as the author of Judges writes this, he's like, you guys are an absolute mess. But, there's, but, but you have hope. Um, do you realize he could have summed up the whole book with just this one statement. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes, and it was all a mess. But actually, the whole verse, we read it, was this, right? In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Actually, this was actually a refrain. It's, this isn't the first time he said this here. At the beginning of chapter 17 and 17 verse 6, this same exact verse occurs there. It says, in those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. As he was introducing these four chapters. And then we, we kind of go along. And then in the beginning of chapter 18, he doesn't say this whole thing, but the beginning of chapter 18 starts off with saying, there was no king in Israel. 
chapter 19 begins with the same thing. There was no king in Israel, and then this was what happens. I think it's obvious what the author of Judges is trying to say. What these people need is a king. What they need is a king. What we need is a king who will lead us. What we need is a king who will rescue us, not only from the people out there, but from ourselves. What we need is a king who will rule over us. What we need is a king who will give us rest and peace. That is what we all need. That's what Israel needed. That is what we need. And the beauty of the book of Judges is that he even gives us hints as far as where to look for that king. I've talked before about how, like, on Easter and other times, like, sometimes Kim will arrange a scavenger hunt for our kids where she'll give clues that lead to other clues that will end up leading to them to some kind of treasure, whether it's an Easter basket or something else, you know? And those clues tell you where to look if you want to find the treasure that was meant for you. And Judges does this. Judges tells us where to look. Judges is, is he's trying to tell the people of Israel where to look to find the king that they need. Um, there are some commentators that, talk that, that point out that they believe, we don't really know exactly when Judges was written, but it's possible that Judges was written at a time when there was a debate. There was a debate in Israel about where Israel's rightful king should come from. See, the first king of Israel was Saul, and he was from the tribe of Benjamin, and he was kind of a, a mess <laughs> in the end. And then the second king that God anointed was David. And where was he? He was from the tribe of Judah. And there, it was very possible that even when David was trying to rise to be the king, that, that people were debating, should we continue to follow the house of Saul, or should we receive the King David as the rightful king? And as you look at the book of Judges, it's interesting. Um, as I ta talked before, it starts off at one point, and then it just gets worse and worse and worse, and we spiral downward and, and further and further, and it, and it gets just really ugly and messy by the end. Well, the very first judge in Israel was Othniel. And there's really nothing that the author of Judges really says that's, that's bad about Othniel. He leads the people and gives them rest. And you know where Othniel is from? He's from the tribe of Judah. And then as you read the book, where do we end up in chapter 19 and 20? We end up in Benjamin. And it's just awful in Benjamin, right? And so the, the, the author of Judges, it seems, is trying to say, look, if, if there's a debate about where we should find our king, I think we're way better off looking in Judah than in Benjamin. The book of Judges is saying, if you want to find the king that you need, the treasure that you were made for, you need to look to Judah, to the king that comes from there. You need to look to King David. He is the one who God meant to bring peace to the people of Israel. But even David isn't perfect, right? He's kind of a mess himself, and he doesn't bring lasting peace. But God gives a, a promise to David that he will have a, a descendant to sit on his throne forever. And, and as I said before, we're going to be returning to Matthew next week. Matthew also says, where, where should you look if you want to find the king that we need, the king who will give us value and significance and peace? Matthew says, look to the house of David. Look to the son of David. That's Jesus. Jesus is the one who 
not only is the perfect king, but, but he is the king who has given his life for us, who has laid down his life out of love for his people, who sacrificed his, sacrifices himself for us because we are so committed to living life on our own terms, because we are so committed to, to living life through our own eyes, doing what is right in our own eyes. Jesus died for us to pay the price that we deserve to pay. Jesus is the king that we need. Jesus is the one who rules perfectly. The one who can give us peace. The one who can give us rest, real rest. Jesus is the only one who can give us the significance and the value that all of us are longing for. Trying to scramble to say, no, I am unique. I am special. It's only by looking to Jesus, the fact that he died for me that I can know that I have real significance and value. And so it's Jesus that we need to look to. Jesus we need to trust. Jesus we need to worship today. I know, this is a really, really basic message. But I want to prepare us as we get ready to move back into Matthew. That is what we are doing. It's, it's the greatest thing that any of us can ever do is get to know Jesus better. Because he is the one that we need. The best thing that we can ever do is, is figure out how, how should I be surrendering to him? How should I be worshiping him? How should I be just rejoicing in him? And so let's get ready to do that. Even today, I, I encourage you to pray. Ask God, show me more of Jesus. Because he is what I need to cure me of my self-centeredness, to cure me of this condition where I am so convinced that, that what is best for me is to do what is right in my own eyes. Help me surrender to him and learn to love him and learn to be loved by him. Let's pray.